0: Welcome to Tales of History and Imagination. Eccentric Tales from History by Simone Woodley. Hi all, I'm starting a new role in my day job and seeing it as something in a whole new field with possible homework to do. I'm putting a couple of the more content-heavy tales on hold till I've settled in. I was planning on podcasting a couple of older blog posts in the meantime, starting with The Sin Eater. On occasion I've wondered about Richard Munslow's funeral in 1906. When the Shropshire farmer, a practitioner of a lost art, died aged 73. Did the kin of his clients come to pay their respects? Was there a gathering held afterwards with food and drink? Did those assembled dare to take a bite? I don't mean to make fun of his passing. I do seriously wonder. There's a riddle. When the undertaker dies, who buries the undertaker? The answer, whosoever undertakes to do so. When a sin-eater passes, who will break bread for them? Given Munslow's passing saw the death, also, of a practice long frowned upon. My best guess is no one. When Richard Munslow passed, the act of sin-eating went to the grave with him. Now I'm a non-believer myself, and of course don't believe Mr. Munslow went to hell. I dread to think he might have believed in his avocation. Did he go to the grave terrified all of Shropshire's collected sins would drag him to the other place when he crossed over? The practice of sin-eating dates at least as far back as the early 17th century, mostly in Wales and the bordering English counties. If somebody died before they could make a final confession, a sin-eater was called in. As the body lay in state, a pastry would be placed upon the deceased's chest or face. Like a crouton swimming in a bowl of soup, the pastry would soak up the deceased's misdeeds. The sin then entered and ate the pastry, reciting, I give easement and rest now to thee, dear man. Come not down the lanes or in our meadows, and for thy peace I pawn my own soul. Amen. Not unlike the Green Mile's John Coffee, a literary stand-in for Jesus, right down to the JC initials. It is believed the practice grew out of a wish to emulate Christ. And the services gave families solace, knowing their relative would now ascend to heaven, free of their baggage. The community at large could breathe easy, some poor spirits would not be stuck in limbo to chain rattle scaring others half to death on stormy or foggy nights. And for having scapegoated themselves, the sin-eater barely ekes out a living. Sin-eating was a profession only for the poorest of the village. It paid very little and carried the heaviest of stigmas. Sin-eaters regularly lived on the outskirts of the town or the village, in semi-isolation. They often made do in some abandoned, ramshackle old shed, living a life scarcely better than a deceased sinner locked out of heaven. They were considered so toxic that to look a sin-eater in the eye was said to bring a curse upon you. Sin-eating was also considered an act of heresy, and of course, a practitioner could face punishment similar to a witch, caught practicing witchcraft. As a rule, most sin-eaters were criminals or alcoholics with very few other options available for him. Though the practice had all but disappeared in the mid-19th century, Richard Munslow, a man who had a well-paying job, but who hated to see others suffer, continued to break bread with the deceased until early into the 20th century. I'm very doubtful others passed on the favour for him. Although it is something that he was honoured by the people of Rattlinghope Shropshire in 2010. His tombstone, much the worse for wear after a century of neglect, Reverend Norman Morris collected a thousand pounds from the locals and had his grave restored to something more akin a man of his heroic stature. There's a belief the Chinese philosopher, and by profession, politician and teacher, Confucius, once wrote. Choose a job you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. This is a misnomer. For one, it doesn't reflect his strict views on life. The man was a stickler for a rigid social order. And for another, the quote just doesn't appear in the Analects. It is a nice quote, however, whoever said it first. It's also something many folk never achieve. Workplace research from our own time shows that only 23% of workers are actively engaged in their day job. Half of employees, on the other hand, are likely to be actively disengaged with their role. Joseph Charles of Berkeley, California, was a man who found great joy in a job that he loved. What's more, he was appreciated for his hard work. The mayor of Berkeley honoured him on his 85th birthday. The people named a tennis court in his honour. His gloves are on display in a museum. Even Walter Cronkite interviewed the man. Charles came to his best-loved role later in life. Born in 1910, he was a professional baseball player in the segregated Negro Leagues before moving to the Bay Area in the 1940s. Mr. Charles worked much of his life in the dockyards. On October 6, 1962, he began the role he became best known for. Stepping out from his weatherboard home on the corner of Oregon Street and Martin Luther King Way, then Grove Street, he waved to every single motorist who drove past. As he waved, he'd call out to motorists, keep on smiling, and have a good day. Joseph Charles took his post weekdays between 7.45am and 9.30am, come rain or shine, for the next 30 years, only retiring from the role, aged 82, in October 1992. Some motorists were initially suspicious of the Waving Man of Berkeley, or Mr. Good Day as some called him. Was the man some kind of communist out to spread Marxism under the guise of random kindness? Others wondered how long it would take him to cause an accident with his tomfoolery. Many, however, found him charming and waved back or beeped their horns. One day, a man stopped to give him a pair of bright yellow gloves. These became the first pair of 18 that Charles would own in his tenure. Many of the estimated 4,500 people he waved to every day detoured just to see him in the morning. Many locals come to love the waving man. One child commenting to her mother, It's like having a blessing bestowed on us every day we drive by. In 1992, a stranger knocked on his door, stating, You don't know me, but my wife and I have been having a lot of problems. And we were thinking of getting a divorce. But after driving by your house every day and seeing your positive outlook on life, we've decided to give it another try. Like any superhero, Charles became the waving man after suffering a loss. A Filipino neighbor he regularly waved to packed up and returned to the Philippines one day without warning. He found he missed the interaction. So we started waving to everyone. His wife Flora at first thought he'd gone completely mad, but after the NBC nightly news, CBS news Walter Cronkite, real people, and Ripley's Believe It or Not came knocking, Flora conceded he was at least helping make the world a better place for people. The people of Berkeley, California were distraught at losing their famed waving man, aged 92, on March 13, 2002. For a period of close to half a century in my own lifetime, New Zealand had its very own wizard. Ian Brackenbury-Chanel arrived on our shores in 1974, having previously served in the RAF as an airman, in Australia's Melbourne University, officially as a sociology lecturer, and unofficially as a cosmologer, living work of art and shaman. He stood atop a ladder in Christchurch's city square to argue a contrarian viewpoint over whatever was topical that day. He trolled Ray Comfort, a New Zealand-born American televangelist. When he was not performing a rain dance in the middle of a drought, the wizard regularly donned his velvet robes and entertained kids on Sunday morning television. The Wizard of Christchurch was honored as a living work of art in 1982, promoted to Wizard of New Zealand by Prime Minister Mike Moore in 1990, and was granted an annual stipend for his wizardry. In 2021, Ian Brackenbury's Chanel was told to hang up his magic robes by Christchurch City Council, after stating in a television interview, I love women, I forgive them all the time. I've never struck one yet. Never strike a woman because they bruise too easily, is the first thing. And they'll tell the neighbours and their friends. And then you're in big trouble. Needless to say, it was not his finest hour. Of course, as colourful a character as the Wizard of New Zealand was, he was an entertainer cosplaying as John Dee. The Wizard of Mauritius, on the other hand, He had mysterious powers which to this day still defy explanation. Etienne Botineau, a man known as the Wizard of Mauritius, was believed to have had an uncanny ability to detect ships headed towards the Isle de France, from distances greater than any spyglass could see. What's more, he could often guess the size and type of the vessel, and if the ship was sailing alone or in a flotilla. Botineau was born in Anjou, France, sometime around 1740. As a young man, he became enamored with the sea and joined the Navy as an engineer. Though records of his life and alleged abilities are sketchy, we know in 1762 he claimed he could sense incoming ships before they became visible. His claim was, and I paraphrase, that a ship must produce a certain effect upon the atmosphere. And while this isn't a terribly descriptive explanation, it does appear that he somehow saw incoming ships as a wave of sensations and colors. Perhaps something similar to the way a synesthete experiences seeing musical colors from different sounds. He tried to codify his talent and sharpen it by privately making predictions on arrivals and his early results were dismal, something he put down to far too much noise in the signal. Too many boats were constantly coming and going in French waters. Botineau’s talents lay dormant and functionally useless, till he was assigned to the remote East African island of Mauritius, 700 miles to the east of Madagascar. Out in the splendid isolation of the island chain, then named Isle de France by the French, he could easily sense ships as far as 700 miles away. Was that colourful sensation a French battleship headed their way, or an East Indiaman sailing for the Bay of Bengal? Bottineau claimed to know exactly which it was, while others were still asking what ship He honed his talents, intending to develop a teachable method he could monetize. He named the method Nauscopy. After six months on the island, he had fully mastered the art and began to show others. The people in charge possibly saw him either as dangerous or as an annoyance, and they sent him off to Madagascar for several years. When he returned to Mauritius, however, Attitudes had changed, and the people there viewed Botineau as a living, breathing oracle. In 1780, Etienne Botineau started collecting data in the hope of selling Nascopy to the French government. Over the space of eight months, he claimed to have made 62 predictions, correctly predicting the course of 150 ships. He kept a log of his predictions, most of which took between two and four days to confirm. He set sail for France in 1784 with his evidence and a letter from the governor of Mauritius, François de Soliac, which concurred the man was indeed an oracle, and he wrote of Bottineau. But he sees the native signs that indicate the presence of vessels what we assert that fire is in places where we see smoke. On his arrival, Bottineau was widely regarded as a conman or a fantasist. He did have one prominent sponsor, however. An all-around Renaissance man, Jean-Paul Marat. Of course, the French Revolution erupted in 1789, and his patron, Marat, took to writing angry invectives which influenced many towards the reign of terror that followed. In 1793, a minor aristocrat named Charlotte Corday assassinated Marat as he bathed. Initially a supporter of the Girondins, who wanted to abolish the monarchy, Corday was horrified by the September massacres of 1792. More than 1,100 political prisoners were murdered in a mass lynching. She blamed Marat for that massacre. With his patron gone, Bottineau returned to sea. His evidence was sketchy at best, and his major backer, a man partially responsible for 40,000 murders, was increasingly more hindrance than help. He spent four years in Sri Lanka and is believed to have passed on in Pondicherry, a French colony in India, in 1802. Thank you for listening. This has been Tales of History and Imagination. All episodes written and narrated by me, Simone Whitlow. All music, yours truly. Visit the show at historyandimagination.com You can follow me on social media, links in the show notes, Get access to exclusive bonus content via my Patreon. Also, in the notes, if you enjoyed the show, please leave a like on your podcatcher of choice share the episode. As word of mouth is the best way to help shows like this grow. See you back in two weeks' time for more tales of history and imagination.